pastors and church planners around the world need your help to receive a confessional Reformed Baptist theological education. Introducing the William Carey Scholarship Fund at Covenant Baptist Theological Seminary. You can help students like Sam in India afford seminary training and Bible software with thousands of critically needed theological books. To learn how you can help, visit cbtseminary.org slash carry. Covenant Podcast exists to equip listeners with theological content from a 1689 Baptist perspective. We pray you find this resource edifying, faithful to Scripture, and Christ-exalting. Now, let's get started. Welcome to the Covenant Podcast. Austin McCormick here, and I have the privilege of hosting Rob Ruiz on the podcast today to talk about Christian liberty. So, welcome to the podcast, Rob. Awesome, man. Glad to be here. Yeah, and before we uh, begin our conversation on Christian liberty, can you just tell our audience a little bit about yourself, who you are, and what you do? Uh, Yes, sure I can. Uh, My name is Rob from SoCal, uh, Southern California. I'm 41 years of age, and I live here with my wife, uh, Diana. Uh, We celebrate 20 years of marriage this July. Uh, So we're looking forward to that. I have four children, uh, Sophia, who is 16, uh, Bella Love is 12, uh, then my two sons, Josiah, just turned eight, and Micah Luke is six years old. Um, So we have a a full plate, I guess. Um, But yeah, I'm blessed with with that, uh, with them as a family. I'm a member at uh, Emmaus Reformed Baptist Church here in uh, Hemet, California, um, I'm currently retired from the Marine Corps or retirement status. And, and therefore, uh, it gives me a lot of freedom to do different things. Uh, if anybody knows me, I've, I've moved a lot in the recent years, attending seminary and then coming back here and then now in seminary again, um, at Covenant Baptist Theological Seminary. I just began taking classes there, continuing my seminary education at a very slow pace because I also am in school, um, to pursue possibly, a degree or a job in the medical field uh, post Marine Corps retirement. And that could be either as a registered nurse or maybe even a PA. Um, but we'll see as, you know, as the Lord leads, as that goes on, it's very demanding. And uh, as you probably would know, and, and so I'm just kind of taking that day by day, but um, also seminary as well. So I got a full plate, but I'm blessed to be able to pursue these things and have my family all to the glory of God. Amen. And yeah, thank you for uh, taking the time to join the podcast today with your full plate. Um, We're going to be talking about Christian liberty, as I mentioned. So we'll just start by looking at the 1689 Confession as we talk about this topic. What does the Second London chapter 21, paragraphs one through three, confess about Christian liberty? And what do we mean by Christian liberty and liberty of conscience? Okay. Yeah. Um, great question. And uh, as, as I looked, as, as you say that question, I'm reminded of a seminary, especially with Dr. Renahan, um, in providing a few quotes from, you know, post-commers that kind of, uh, you know, before we jump into uh, the what it says, um, just show the importance of this doctrine of Christian liberty um, in the mind of some of the post-reformers, as I said. Uh, this is a quote from Calvin. Uh, how to treat Christian liberty, the explanation of which certainly ought not to be omitted by one proposing to give a summary of gospel doctrine. 
For it is a matter of primary necessity, one without the knowledge of which the conscience can scarcely attempt anything without hesitation. In many must hesitate and fluctuate, and in all proceed with fickleness and trepidation. In particular, it, for, it forms a proper appendix to justification and is no little service in understanding its force. But as we have said, if the subject be not understood, neither Christ nor the truth of the gospel nor the inward peace of the soul is properly known. And that's Calvin uh, Institutes, uh, book three, uh, 19, one. Um, so according to Calvin, Christian, Christian liberty is a gospel of concern. Uh, and it states uh, that one cannot even understand, according to Calvin, the full gospel without this doctrine of Christian liberty. So those are some very powerful words. Uh, I'll read one more just from John Owen, for time's sake, uh, on Christian liberty. John Owen says, the second principle of the Reformation, whereon the reformers justified their separation from the Church of Rome, was this, that Christian people were not tied up unto blind obedience unto church guides, but were not only at liberty but also obliged to judge for themselves as unto all things that they were to believe and practice in religion and the worship of God. They knew that the whole fabric of the papacy did stand on this basis or dunghill, that the mystery of iniquity was cemented by this device, namely that the people were ignorant and to be kept in ignorance, being obliged in all things unto an implicit obedience unto their pretended guides. And of course, he's uh, going after Rome with that quote, John Owen, um, and explaining uh, that says it in that first sentence, the second principle of the Reformation, um, according to John Owen, was the doctrine of Christian liberty. And I said I was only two, but I'll read this last one by Samuel Bolton, who was a contemporary of the Western uh, Westminster Divines. He says, two great things Christ has entrusted into the hands of his church, Christian faith, and Christian liberty. Just as we are to contend earnestly for the maintenance of the faith, so also for the maintenance of the Christian liberty, and that against all who would oppose and mind it, stand fast in the liberty wherewith Christ has made us free. And it's Jude 3 and Galatians 5, 1, which are the scripture references he gives. And that's in his book, The True Bounds of Christian Freedom on page 20. And so um, according to Bolton, he says that Christ has given us two things, and that is Christian faith, how we are believe, and Christian liberty, how we are to practice our faith. And so that's, uh, those are three very important quotes. Um, James Renahan himself in seminary, he taught, he taught us that the RP, a quote from him, says that the uh, regulative principle of worship was formulated by the Puritans in defense of the doctrine of Christian liberty. And so... It doesn't get any more stronger than that. These statements by the post-reformers, uh, James Renahan saying that the whole RPW, which those of us who are a part of the reformed tradition hold to dearly and find freedom in and regulative principle of worship, um, that that um, was um, formulated by the Puritans in defense of this important doctrine. So um, before I read through the confession, I, I really wanted to hammer that home because I think that um, Christian liberty has kind of uh, disappeared a lot of times, or maybe it's just been so um, mishandled that uh, Christians today and churches, many churches today, don't really talk about or teach this important doctrine. And as you can see, it's very, very important. And so as I start with the confession um, in chapter 21, um, in paragraph one, 
this paragraph lays out the general or basic doctrine um, of Christian liberty. Um, so in paragraph one, I, I have all my notes here uh, scribbled in my confession, but I, I think it's important that it's so clearly stated here. We could simply just read through here and just discuss it. Um, paragraph one in the sentence one, the liberty which Christ has purchased for believers under the gospel consists in their freedom from the guilt of sin, the condemning wrath of God, and the rigor and curse of the law. And so I think that first sentence, the liberty which Christ has purchased is very important for us to understand as Christians today. Um, what the confession is stating is that freedom, Christian liberty, does not just come, it's not just granted, it's not just something we, we have, but in fact, it was purchased for us, for believers, uh, by Christ. And so that's a very important place to start. Not only is the doctrine super important, as the post-reformers stated, but that this doctrine, our freedom that we have in Christ was purchased for us by Christ. And therefore, in the next several sentences, it shows that we have three freedoms, we have three deliverances, and then we also have some privileges due to all these things. So let me just kind of, for time's sake, uh, I'll just kind of kind of walk through it real quick. Um, since we have, uh, it's been purchased for believers under the gospel, we now have freedom from the guilt of sin. We have freedom from the condemning wrath of God and freedom from the rigor and curse of the law. And we know we have freedom and the rigor and curse of the law because the law, in fact, has been reversed by Christ at the cross. Um, the fall of man, the curse, the, the worst curse in the history of, uh, of man has been reversed by Christ. And so we have those three freedoms because Christ has purchased it for us. Um, and then following those, I, I have three deliverances that follow those freedoms. And the first is that we are being delivered from present evil world, that we are, 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 we are delivered from our bondage to Satan and dominion of sin. And so those are three important things as well, as, um, as if we are delivered from the present evil world, we are no longer citizens of this world, right? Um, that's why the Bible is so clear that we are sojourners in some sense of this world, those who have been redeemed and are, have faith in Christ, um, that, we are no, that we are no longer citizens of this world. We're still living in this world, but we are citizens of something far greater than that. Um, we are no longer in bondage to Satan. We are no longer um, uh, not only citizens of this world, but he is no longer Lord of us, um, which again points to the difference there is between believers and unbelievers in our relationship um, to Christ and their relationship to Satan. Um, and uh, we have three freedoms, three deliverances, and then we have uh, privileges that are stated here. Um, and the first one I see is uh, the fear and sting of death. Uh, we have a privilege of, um, or I'm sorry, the diminution from evil addiction and the fear of sting and death, the victory of the grave and everlasting damnation. Okay. Um, these are, I'm sorry, I misspoke. Those are still part of the deliverances that we have. Um, and then the privileges follow that. But it's important to know that 
in, in those things being removed for us, we have freedoms that we have in Christ. We have deliverances that we have. And um, I'm, trying to, I'm trying to look my notes. They're all scribbled here. But when I see the fear of sin and death, I'm remembered, uh, I just remember Hebrews 2.15. Um, and it says that in Hebrews 2.15 that uh, he delivers all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. All right. So once again, pointing to the things that believers are delivered from. Um, and, and although in this world, in this life, it's not that we're uh, believers at all times are going to remember this, that we're going to know this fully and truly. Sometimes we struggle with this, but, um, but it has been removed. The sting of death has been removed. And I think Paul talks about that um, in 1 Corinthians 15. Um, when he says, when the parables, when the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immorality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. So Paul, there quoting uh, the prophet Hosea in chapter 13 of Hosea. Uh, talking about this we are being delivered from the sting of death uh, we have victory of the over the grave again which means we don't have to fear dying it doesn't mean we do this perfectly as christians um, but in one sense um, we don't have to fear our death and again in contrast to an unbeliever where it seems like they do fear death and are in constant uh, a constant battle and trying to delay that as much as possible right before the believer to really believe that we have victory over the grave through Christ, that, that we will actually be present with our Lord when we are not here, as Paul states. Um, uh, those are big differences between us and unbelievers. And so um, this is very, very important. Um, we have free access to God and a yielding obedience unto him, not out of slavish fear, but out of a childlike love and a willing mind. Those are um, really strong statements. How do we have free access to God? Well, we have free access to God through Christ. That's how we have access to God. Um, yielding obedience to him, not out of slavish fear, but out of childlike love and willing mind. I remember me as a youth and my relationship, I believe, before I became a Christian, um, was a thought of God. And I had a poor view of who God was. And it was a relationship I had with him based on fear. Um, all the churches that I was uh, part of as part of my youth, they actually taught me to think that way, right? And I would say even close family members taught me to think of that way. And it's because they had a bad theology and a poor view of God. And um, therefore, I didn't have that uh, childlike love and willing mind that it states here so clearly in the confession. I now have children. I know you have children. but I. I, I think it's important and I actually appreciate it and love when my children obey me and it's out of love for me, right? Not out of fear that I'm gonna take away one of their uh, devices or turn off the Wi-Fi or, or do something like that, but yet they're, they're obeying me because they love me. And I think that uh, last sentence of that first part of paragraph one is important for us. 
And so those are, those are, I quickly summarize that, three freedoms that we have, three deliverances that we have through Christ, and then we have privileges that follow those. And I hope I was able to, to kind of share those clearly. Um, but if you see in, in our confession, there is a little break there between the first part of paragraph one. Um, and it kind of goes to start talking about um, believers under the law and us Christians today. Um, and it, it, there's a difference there, the, the distinction they're trying to make. But I think it's important that it starts with all which were common also to believers under the law for the substance of them. But under the New Testament, the liberty of Christians is further enlarged. And so that all that it begins in the sentence, we have to be clear that we are saying that everything above that I just talked about, the purchase of our freedom, our liberty from Christ, the three freedoms I mentioned, the deliverances and the privileges, that we have to be clear that all OT saints, we would argue, experienced these same things. That's important to say, because sometimes we, we miss that, we forget that, and that could lead to big time problems. Um, we think that they did have access to these things. They had all of this, all of his redeemable uh, in the OT. We call them OT, Old Testament saints. Um, and so with that, they, 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 they had access to that. They received those things. They had those freedoms. They had those deliverances and privileges. But yet there is a distinction made between them and us. And that is one of, I like to say, one of, uh, uh, I think, uh, instead of quantitative, it'd be, uh, instead of qualitative, it'd be quantitative. I think that's the correct way of saying it. Correct me if I'm wrong there. Um, they had access to these things, but we have greater access to these things. It's not anything inherent in us. It's just uh, what God explained and, and what, you know, the time of the, uh, of the world that we were born in, that we're in the here and now under the new covenant. And so, um, with that, um, it describes there, it doesn't leave us hanging, but it describes there what are those things. Um, the, under the New Testament, the liberty of Christians is further enlarged in their freedom from the yoke of the ceremonial law. There's one thing. Um, we are not um, bound to the stipulations of the Mosaic Code as the OT saints were. That's a, that's a huge thing um, to which the Jewish church was subjected. And then, two, in greater boldness of access to the throne of grace. I just said that they had access as well. Those are his people in the Old Testament, in the, in the Old Covenant. Um, they had access, but we have greater access. And that's because our access, again, as I stated before, is through Christ. We have access through Christ. Um, I guess an example would be, I remember who it was. Um, who gave me this illustration, but it was, it was kind of pointing to, um, for an OT saint who sinned, what did he have to do in order to be forgiven of that sin? He had to uh, sacrifice an animal, right? He had to take a ritual bath of some sort. Um, and he was supposed to take that to the priest and that sin would be atoned for in a sense, right? And so we today, don't have to do that. We could go straight to Christ, right? We go straight to Christ, to Christ, we repent, and he promises to, uh, to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us of all unrighteousness, right? And so in that sense, uh, it's a good illustration, I think, of saying that we have um, greater boldness of 
this is the throne of grace. That's a good example um, of that. And then in the last part of that paragraph, um, it says, and in fuller communications of the free spirit of God, than believers did ordinarily partake of. And so again, this paragraph is so clear. It could obviously speak for itself. But in discussing that last sentence, um, how is it that we have fuller communications with the free spirit of God? And I think it's because we are post-Pentecost, right? As Christians, we believe that the spirit of God came at Pentecost, right? Um, that does not mean that the OT saints did not have the Holy Spirit of God, right? We could just read the Psalms and read David, and he mentions that quite a bit, right? The Holy Spirit was in the Old Testament, was with God's OT saints. But this is, again, another qualitative, quantitative kind of thing, where it's more of the Spirit is available. Um, I'm, I'm trying to remember passage, I think it's John 7, 37, where Jesus um, Jesus, in fact, says that the spirit or the, the spirit has not come yet. Um, let me look it up just so I don't, uh, uh, I don't, uh, step over myself. John 7, 37 on the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out. If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Then it says, now this he said about the spirit is John writing whom those who believed in him who were in him were to receive for as yet the spirit had not been given because Jesus was not yet glorified. And so there's another example of the qualitative quantitative distinction there that the Holy Spirit was given to the OT saints. It was there, but it's just given more so now after Pentecost. And again, we want to be consistent with the scriptures because uh, we don't want to deny what happened at Pentecost, right? Um, so if we say it was all the same through all time, it kind of makes the Bible look inconsistent and we know that that's not the case. Um, and if any case, it'd be that we are, right? And so that's just walking through paragraph one. Uh, I know it kind of was quickly, but um, I think it speaks for itself, but I hope some of those points kind of um, can help us along the way as far as Christian liberty um, and liberty of conscience is concerned. Um, before I went on to, to paragraph two, which deals with the boundaries of Christian liberty, um, you could talk about that more. I don't know. Do you have any questions? Do you think that you want me to go a different direction? No, that's, that was good. And thank you for that. I think it'd be good for our conversation if we would just move on to the second paragraph of Christian liberty before we start looking okay. at scripture. For sure, for sure, for sure. Um, and, and my boundaries, I think, again, this uh, paragraph two is, is clear there, is that God alone is Lord of the conscience. And I think in this paragraph, I have my notes here again, saying uh, Rome, Rome, Rome all over the place. And I think we're going to start seeing more of that, especially in this, in this paragraph. But God alone is Lord of the conscience. Once again, in paragraph one, it starts off by saying that the liberty that we have in Christ was purchased. Boom, bold statement at the beginning. And here alone, and here again in paragraph two, it makes another um, statement. And I guess sometimes a controversial statement, which it shouldn't be, but a bold statement in that God alone is Lord of the conscience, right? And we'll hear that again as our, as our discussion continues. Um, but he has left it free, our conscience, 
from the doctrine and commandments of which are in anything contrary to his word or not contained in it. Um, this is important. Again, I think of Rome, which we know anyone who uh, knows the distinction between Protestants and the Catholic Church with the Reformation. And again, even Catholicism today, um, which still do these things, um, these doctrines and commandments of men, um, these uh, the authors of our confession here are really hammering towards that, as did the Savoy Declaration and uh, the Westminster Divines as well in their confession. And so um, if God alone is the Lord of the conscience, all right, all these doctrines, commandments, the, the tra man-made traditions of the Catholic Church, I guess in this context, um, that they should not be followed, that um, these are not things that you should hang or put on God's people for they become burdens and yokes on the necks of God pe God's people because they are not dictated for us in scripture. And here it says um, anything contrary to his word or not contained in it. And I have a little note here, which is not contained in it. That language is different. Um, it actually, it's the Savoy Declaration that says, though uh, uses that second part of that sentence there or not contained in it. The Westminster Confession of Faith does not. And I think the, the Baptists took this from the, from the Savoy. Um, and I think we could understand that. It's an important thing, especially for Baptists, even when you look to the doctrine of uh, infant baptism or something down the road, which we will discuss that in a second, um, we would argue that that's not contained in scripture, right? And that gets into the language of consequences, good and necessary consequences. And that leads into covenant theology. And you can see how all these things are, are tied in there. But specifically, uh, when talking about Rome and the doctrines that they've established, man-matriarch uh, uh, doctrines and traditions, uh, the reformers, and we do today as Protestants, um, and as those in the reformed tradition, we deny those uh, as well. And so that it continues to say so that those so that to believe such doctrine or obey such commands out of conscience is to betray true liberty of conscience and the requiring of an implicit faith and absolute and blind obedience is to destroy liberty of conscience and reason also. And so it, it, it's condemning the person or not only the people like, like Rome who just established those doctrines and then dictate to the people that you are to believe these things as well, um, that they're destroying Christian liberty. And in, in doing so, it says in, in the requiring of implicit faith and absolute blind obedience is to destroy liberty of conscience and reason also. So also the person who decides to believe in those things right, without seeing them in the word itself, um, they also are destroying Christian liberty and, um, and are in sin. And so that's very important with um, paragraph two. Again, I know I went through that quickly, but again, this paragraph dis discusses the boundaries uh, of Christian liberty because in, in chapter 21, it doesn't just discuss our freedoms that we have. And going back to when you first, uh, you know, asked me the question, I think that this doctrine is often overlooked or misunderstood and that, you know, we could often go in two ways with it. Um, one way would be some sort of antinomianism, 
um, that we don't want to go to. And, and sometimes people respond to antinomianism, which is going to the, the other extreme, which is, um, again, creating man-made laws and traditions and then um, placing them on God's people. And that, this could come in many ways, not only for the church, uh, for Rome, uh, for the Catholic church, but also in, in regular churches all across America or the world that um, based on the conviction or personality or something of the pastor, right? He can uh, get these things, convictions that are not found in scripture or contained in God's word and then push those down to the people and demand those things of them. And it could lead, um, instead of following the boundaries of Christian liberty, it could again put, be placing new laws on the back of God's people. And so that's uh, paragraph two. Again, um, the context of that paragraph is, is giving us boundaries of Christian liberty, um, but also you could see a lot of pointing to uh, Roman Catholic Church in that. And then the last paragraph before we look at a scriptural basis for Christian liberty. For sure. Um, paragraph three, they who upon pretense of Christian liberty do practice any sin or cherish any sinful lust as they do thereby pervert the main design of the grace of the gospel to their own destruction. So they wholly destroy the end of Christian liberty which is that being delivered out of the hands of all of our enemies, we might serve the Lord without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all the days of our lives. And so going back to those freedoms that we had in paragraph one, deliverances that I talked about, and then our privileges that we have, um, we can destroy all of that um, that has already taken place and we can do so by, again, as in paragraph two, following these, um, uh, these, these man-made traditions and laws, things that are not contained, anything that is not contained in God's word, and then placing them on other people, or again, following them for ourselves. Um, we can pervert and destroy the doctrine of Christian liberty. And at the end there, again, it says, I serve the Lord without fear. And as we look at scripture references here soon, um, we're going to see that that's, the, that's exactly what the scriptures tell us, that we are to serve without fear and holiness and righteousness before him all the days of our lives happens, which is a natural result of what paragraph two says, which is either men putting them on God's people or God's people even believing them themselves. It produces the opposite of that. We start to live in fear. We start to question everything, like our assurance and, um, and, and our hope of the gospel and, and sanctification. And everything is distorted and ruined when we start believing these things, again, that are not contained in scripture. And so that's a quick summary or overview of the three paragraphs in chapter 21 um, of the confession. But I think it's important that... Um, you know, as I'm reading through this, in chapter 21, you're reading things that push you backwards into the confession. You're starting to see words like justification there, and it pushes you back to um, the chapter on justification, and, and what does that mean, and how is this tied to that, right? Well, in those three quotes from the reformers, um, you can see that it is closely related to the gospel, right? 
I like to say only the gospel is the gospel, right? And I know a gospel issue has really been um, used a lot lately in different contexts, you know, things that we're kind of going through as a, as, a, as a world today. But again, this is really closely tied to it um, and should be taken uh, very seriously. So it, it points us back, but it also points us forward, I believe, into what follows, um, what follows after chapter 21. And that is um, chapters 22 all the way to chapter 30. Chapter 22 all the way to chapter 30 because um, the whole unit, we kind of, I remember learning that the, the London Baptist Confession, the second London, is, is, is broken up into four units. While unit three would be Christian liberty, um, and that would be chapters 21 all the way to chapter 30. And so I had a few notes written down here to where we could kind of see how that uh, takes place. Um, see if I could uh, find my notes here. But um, let's see. Yeah, and so if we look at chapter 22, and I'll just kind of skim through these real quick, but, but just to show you how Christian liberty is, is closely tied to these things. In chapter 22, we have um, uh, the religious worship and the Sabbath day. God has told us how to worship him. And in scripture, we can declare that he is to be worshiped on the first day of the week. And that's what we do today as Christians. And so we can tell our people to worship him. We can't, we can tell our people to worship him on the first day of the week, but we can't tell our people, maybe pastors, as people in the church, that, um, that we are to worship him on any other day. And you see how this is, is related. This is a matter of Christian liberty. The Bible tells us when to worship God. And so we are to tell our people that as pastors, but we are not to tell them to do something that's not contained in the word. Um, in the next chapter, chapter 23, I think is oaths, uh, I believe, lawful oaths and vows. Um, it's important to see that, that we see that when are we supposed to make these vows, how, where, um, it tells us that in chapter 23. Uh, the civil magistrate in chapter 24, um, it tells us what, what we are to obey from the government. What are the limits of the government? Um, what we are not to obey. For example, if the government says, uh, posts the speeding limit and says you are to not go above the speeding limit, is that violating our Christian liberty? I would say no. I think we are to respect those laws, right, as citizens of this country. Um, and it even tells us the, the levels, I guess you can say, or speaks to the levels of the government, of the magistrate and helps us to better uh, see them for what they really are. But we also know that there's boundaries there. Remember freedoms and boundaries, you keep seeing these things uh, mentioned or hearing these things. It's because it also shows us that if the government steps in and tries to tell us how we are to worship God, then we know that we are clearly not to obey them, right? If they overstepped um, where they're supposed to be and they try to dictate that because only God tells us how to worship him. And that, again, is a matter of liberty. And so if we go to the next chapter, which is uh, chapter 24, um, I'm sorry, 25 of marriage, um, that's important thing. And it's also a matter of liberty. Who are we? Uh, chapter 25 clearly shows us with scripture who are we are not to marry, right? And so there's the boundaries. But then in light of who we are not to marry, we also could then have freedom in choosing who we are to marry, right? And so there's boundaries and freedoms. 
And so as long as that um, we're not marrying someone who's not someone who we ought not to marry, then we have that freedom and we have that freedom in Christ. And so as we continue chapter 27, um, I believe it's chapter 20, oh, chapter 26 of the church. Um, and then chapter 27, I have a note here. What do we owe each other as brethren ordinances or as brethren? I think it's important that within the church, and I just had a, a conversation um, with my pastor today. And it's important because even this kind of topic came up, which is the other, the brethren in the church and how we are to treat our, treat each other. Um, I think it's important because as brethren, as people in the church, and then in 27, um, which is uh, of the communion of the saints, we learn that we have obligations to one another as Christians. And that's important for us to know that, um, that in a sense, we, we owe each other something, right? And in chapter 27, it kind of walks through those things and how we are to treat each other, uh, what we kind of owe each other, not in a way of, of paying somebody back for doing a job for you or anything, but as seeing each other as um, people, Christians who have been redeemed and forgiven in Christ and, and how we are to treat each other within the church, okay? So again, this is a matter of Christian liberty, okay? And then uh, in chapter 28, we have the baptism and the Lord's Supper, and then 29 and 30, which is uh, what kind of a general description of the ordinances or sacraments, and then 29 and 30, which, um, which deal directly with baptism and the Lord's Supper. And this is important because it also deals with Christian liberty because the Bible tells us how we are to perform these sacraments, what, what they actually are. It tells us that, um, that Christ is Lord over the sacraments. And for us Baptists, we would say that due to the Lordship of Christ over them, uh, we actually get our doctrine of believer's baptism, okay? And that's where we get that from. And we would argue that, again, this is, might be another, uh, uh, maybe a, a, for another episode, but we would argue that infant baptism, which is not in the scriptures, violates not only the regulative principle of worship, but also infringes on our Christian liberty. Why? Because we would go back to chapter 21, paragraph two, and you would see that anything not contained in the word of God, uh, we are not called to obey. We are to do away with those things, right? And so, again, I walked through those and, and real quick just to kind of show that chapter 21 lays the basic doctrine of Christian liberty, but it affects everything forward up until chapter uh, 31, which speaks to the last things. But it also jumps back constantly to God's covenant, to justification, to, to everything. So um, I agree with the reformers and I stand with them that this is a very important doctrine and um, one that is of primary importance. And maybe even as uh, John Owen said, I think it was, that it's the second principle of the Reformation. Yeah, thank you for that. We've been talking about the first three chapters of, uh, or the first three paragraphs of chapter 21, the only three <laughs> paragraphs. Um, and you quoted scripture in your explanation of the confession. Um, but now I'll give you more of an opportunity to just talk about uh, where the framers drew from in their articulation of this doctrine. Um, there are many citations. So for the sake of time, you could do as, as you please here. But what is the scriptural basis for this doctrine we've been talking about, Christian liberty? 
Yeah, I think um, it's very, what I love about our confession, what's beautiful about it is that it's just that, a confession, right? It confession, it confesses what the scriptures state, and therefore we can have confidence that what the confession states is not man-made traditions, but the truths of scriptures, scriptures summarized in this important uh, historic document, which is um, the Second London Baptist Confession. And so I do, all I have to do is, is kind of look at these citations. I've already shared uh, some of them in my, but I'll kind of walk through a few again for time's sake. Um, that kind of will help point out to the things I discussed already. Um, Acts 26, 18 uh, says to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. We could already hear some of the things I talked about in that first opening paragraph. Um, turning from darkness to light, the power of Satan to God. Paul speaks about this greatly. Of course, he's doing so right here in Acts. But um, it's it's uh, very, very clear here that, again, in that first paragraph, that the framers got their definitions or their descriptions from Scripture. They're not man-made. And that um, these things are clear. We are uh, free from are delivered from the bondage of Satan. And we could see that here in Acts 26. Um, and then the forgiveness of sins and those who are sanctified by faith in me. Again, pointing to not living a life of fear as a Christian. Uh, we shouldn't be living a life as a Christian. Um, we obviously are called to hate our sin, to even kill our sin, right? We want to hate the things our Lord hates and love the things he uh, loves, right? But we also aren't called to be Christians who are walking on eggshells, right? And I think that really points out here clearly. Uh, Romans 8, 3, for God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. First Corinthians 15, I know I read that one. I'm just going to read it again because it's, it's clear. Um, uh, what Paul is saying here, when the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immorality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ, right? And so it's not that we have some kind of personal victory that we've earned or anything for making a decision or following something. It's all because of our Lord Jesus Christ. That again puts that that victory or the um, removal of the sting of death uh, for God's people. Um, a couple more, First Thessalonians 1, and to wait for his son from heaven who he raised from the dead, Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come, right? We've been delivered and we talked about that in paragraph one. Romans 8, 15, for you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The language in paragraph one, it says that, but a childlike love and willing mind, right? How more clear does it get with Paul right there stating that? That is our relationship as we've been adopted as sons, former enemies, being beaten, being defeated by Christ, 
adopted into his family. And now we have that relationship with him as a father. And we don't need to fall back into fear. We don't need to be a slave of our fear. We don't need to do that. And again, that, that kind of goes with the eggshells reference I mentioned a little bit ago. And then uh, I'll share two more. Luke 1, 73 to 75, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we being delivered from the hand of our enemies might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all of our days. There it is again, no fear. There is no fear in love, First John 4, 18. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment. And whoever fears has not been perfected in love. Once again, a matter of liberty. That's, that's, uh, there's no fear in true love. And we have to remember that as Christians, that we don't have to fear punishment um, because we've been redeemed, we've been saved by Jesus Christ. And then the last one, our Hebrews 10, 19 to 23. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with the true heart in full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering for he who promised is faithful. There is another tremendous statement there by the author of Hebrews. Um, that, uh, that we have confidence in the holy place by the blood of Jesus. Again, this is the opposite of having a fear, walking on eggshells type feeling as a Christian. Again, it's not um, leaning towards the extreme of antinomianism to where we can uh, live our lives as Christians the way we did before we were saved, right? That's not what it's saying. But it also is, again, the other extreme, saying that we don't have to live in fear, for we have been purchased, we have been given these liberties by Christ, and therefore we can be free in that and have confidence and assurance and go to the throne of grace boldly. All these things speaking to um, what Christ has done for his people and how he has purchased, again, going back to the doctrine of Christian liberty and liberty of conscience, he has purchased that for his people, and we need to remember that. So those are a free, few of the references, there's many more in here. Again, the confession, I'm so glad, is so clear. Um, I could have literally just read you the three paragraphs and we'd be done. But. <laughs> um, some of these uh, next questions have similarities with each other, so I might ask them two at a time because it's kind of positively and negatively asking the same thing. So for okay. the next part of the conversation, um, what are some practical applications for this doctrine and how it might uh, affect Christians so positively, and then what dangers yeah. might we fall into theologically if we don't rightly understand Christian liberty? Yeah, great, uh, great question. I think um, I think we have to remember that uh, and be reminded that God alone is Lord of the conscience, as it says in uh, paragraph uh, two, in the beginning, that huge statement, that important statement, God alone is Lord of the conscience. He alone is. We are to be reminded of that, of that and he has left it free. Um, so Christian liberty provides us with boundaries, but also with our freedoms. When you remember both of those, it's not just one or the other that will keep us from going to the two extremes. Um, and I think that's a very practical, practical way of seeing this doctrine. Um, and it's important because 
you asked what dangers could we fall into theologically, I've already kind of spoke about that. Um, I'll give you an example of growing up in the denomination um, that I grew up in. It was actually, it's known today as the non-denominational denomination, I think. Uh, many, many people could let the reader understand, or the hearer understand that one. But as I grew up in there, in that tradition, I had an unhealthy uh, view of God. And it was an unhealthy, I would say, fear of God, because we are called to fear the Lord, right? But the way I feared him was one of a big authoritative ruler in the sky pointing his finger at me, making sure uh, I wasn't doing what I wasn't supposed to, right? Or he was going to punish me in some sense. And um, so I had an unhealthy view of God. And I think that resulted from, partly from the pastor there, um, having a poor view of Christian liberty. And I, I'll explain this, a quick example is, uh, I remember when it came to uh, the consumption of alcohol. And I grew up thinking alcohol was evil and was bad in itself, the actual alcohol itself. And you could even move this into, I don't know if I'm jumping ahead here, but um, even into tobacco and other things, right? Um, but for, for him, he decided that alcohol itself was evil. And then he took that conviction and then he passed it down to the rest of the church. And he, and he placed that burden on the church and told us that. He even gave an example of kind of sitting out doing yard work at your house. He used to say this all the time. And he would say, you're sitting out doing yard work. And let's say you're tired. It's a hot day and you want a beer. So you go open a beer, let's say your wife even brings you beer and you sit there and you drink it. Well, what happens if somebody from the church drives by? And if somebody from the church, uh, that's, this is what he said, if they drive by and see you, they don't know that you have only had one beer, right? For all they know, you're just sitting under the tree drunk, right? Drinking all kinds of beer all day, every day, right? And so with this illustration, he put a fear on to people he didn't rightly understand Christian liberty. He turned something that the Bible does not declare as evil, which is alcohol, right? Um, the Bible actually says alcohol is, is something different. Um, I can't, I don't know if I have the, I think it's Psalms. Psalms 104 actually says that alcohol, all right? It's, it's not, um, it's not, uh, did I lose you? Okay. It, alcohol is not something that, is uh, evil in itself. It's actually a gift from the Lord. In Psalms 104, it says um, that it is a gift from God. And I, I think it has wine pictured there, not grape juice or some kind of juice or anything, right? Um, and so it's important for us to know that beer or alcohol in itself is not evil, but this pastor with a bad view of Christian liberty turned it into evil, his own conviction that he had, put it down on the people. And again, he destroyed Christian liberty in the process. And I think that's, again, going to an extreme. And because the Bible's clear that being a drunkard is sin, right? And Paul's very clear there, which he includes being a drunkard with many other horrible things, right? Sadly, in this world today, we don't really place drunkards in that category as the other things he mentions, but the Bible clearly does. And so we need to understand there's a difference between, you know, being a drunkard and consuming alcohol. But again, back to the point, um, he took that personal conviction he had, placed it down on the people. And again, it goes to paragraph two there of chapter 21, which is man-made 
things that are not in the scripture and then teaching that to our people. I think um, that's a huge mess. It, it hugely affected me in my life. Um, and now I'm, I'm glad to, to understand or have a, a, a rightful definition of, of those things and um, unable to, to have freedom there as well um, with, uh, of course, uh, not going indulging or in those things or anything, but um, not seeing them as inherently evil but again, focusing on the individual and what he does with those things, right? And so I don't know if I was clear there, but that's an example of uh, somebody taking the doctrine of Christian liberty and, and distorting it and what can actually result from that. So I don't know. I hope that that kind of answered the question. Yeah, I think uh, that it can produce an unnecessary bondage or burden upon someone that the word of God does not uh, place upon them whenever we force the uh, commandments of men upon someone. Um, yeah. And so piggybacking off of this just a little bit, you, you kind of hit on one of the things I was going to ask you. Um, I'm going to lump these together. So in light of Christian liberty, especially the phrase from our confession, God alone is Lord of the conscience, how should we understand things like tattoos, and piercings in light of Christian liberty, and then also what you hit on, how should we understand the consumption of alcohol and tobacco in light of Christian liberty? Uh, if you feel like you've already answered that, that's fine, but I'm just lumping those two questions together. No, no, I think it's great to, you know, even just keep discussing it. Um, you know, going back to paragraph two, God alone is Lord of the conscience, as you said, and has left it free from the doctrines and commandments of men, which are in anything contrary to his word are not contained in it. I read that again, because we don't see, I know people are bringing up passages in Leviticus and stuff for tattoos. I have tattoos. Um, I actually enjoy alcohol um, in moderation, of course. Uh, and I smoke tobacco, cigars. <laughs> so it's like I'm uh, those all three of those hit me right uh, in the face. But um, those things are not condemned in scripture. I already told you about Psalms 104, which is saying that uh, that the alcohol is a gift from the Lord, right? Format uh, from the Lord. Um, and so we are to be careful with these things. Make sure that we don't, again, per, uh, turn personal convictions that we have and place them on God's people. Um, placing new laws on God's people, which again is ruining Christian liberty and that which Christ has purchased for us. And so tattoos are not condemned. Um, I think piercing is condemned. Obviously in Leviticus, I'm remembering, I can't get it out of my mind now, that passage on tattoos, obviously that was a different context. And if you understand that passage, you know that it wasn't speaking towards the tattoos that normally people get today. Although I do have tattoos that I regret getting earlier in my youth, especially in the Marine Corps. I actually have had uh, like 12 laser removal treatments trying to get them out. And um, so people should think about that. If you're listening and you're thinking about getting a tattoo, make sure you know what you want because it is not uh, easy trying to take them off. So uh, they're not even fully gone yet, but um, yeah, I'm taking them off just because I don't like the tattoo, not because I think tattoos are evil. But again, more importantly, um, just because we have these freedoms, um, just because alcohol is not evil and that it is a gift from the Lord to man, we are to enjoy these things. I can sit here and I should be able to light up a cigar right now and have a cigar, have a stogie to the glory of God, right? He has given me the freedom to do that. But just because we have these freedoms, um, doesn't necessarily mean that we are to um, 
be in a position of, I think it could be prideful, right? To where you celebrate your freedoms that you have in Christ so much that you have no care for the brethren, that you have no love for your neighbor. And that even people who are real sensitive to that um, are perhaps, they actually even believe differently than you, that, that it is evil in some sense, right? You don't have to agree with them. You don't have to say, well, yeah, he thinks it's evil, so it is evil, right? Because I think the confession hits on that, especially in, in paragraph three, that if, if it's not in the word of God, then it's not to be believed. And so we are not to believe what they believe, right? But in the same sense, aren't we to be graceful to them? Aren't we to be patient with them and loving to them? And so um, you're not going to see a lot of people all the time posting uh, pictures, let's say they don't, they, they, uh, somebody likes whiskey, uh, posting pictures of their whiskey locker every day, right? Uh, maybe they're not doing so because they're like, you know what, I have freedoms, but I don't want to do that because I don't want to hurt a brother or sister in the faith. Maybe someone who struggles with alcohol, right? Maybe if you um, believe in your heart that alcohol is sinful, that the Bible does condemn it, um, that leads into something else, which is what if you still partake of alcohol? even though you believe in your heart that the Bible condemns it, well, I think the confession speaks to, and of course the Bible, of course, speaks to um, you being in sin. And that's a sin of violating your conscience, right? So the Bible doesn't contain the words that alcohol is evil, but you believe it's evil and it's not glorifying the God to take of alcohol, but you partake of it anyways, then you are in sin and need to repent of that sin. And so you see how it has the opposite kind of reaction as well. One, to where we should be sensitive with these things because we're loving our neighbor. But again, we don't have to, we don't have to fall into a place of walking on eggshells again so much that we start believing things that just simply aren't contained in the word of God. So I hope that helps in those things. Um, I know I do, you know, a lot of people joke with me all the time, especially uh, Reform Mike, you know, Big Mike over there in Florida. He always giving me hard times for posting selfies and stuff. Although he posts more, I think he posts more selfies than I do. But um, he always gives me a hard time. But again, I'll maybe show a cigar or something. Um, but again, I think uh, I'm, I, am, I am thinking of the brethren, even on social media when I'm posting pictures or something like that. Um, because I think it's... Uh, as much as we could celebrate and be happy about our freedoms that we've been given, that have been purchased for us in Christ, that we can um, we can also remember to love our neighbor, and that is not to to become prideful and just throwing it down their faces um, when they might disagree with us. So. Hmm. What resources would you recommend for someone who would like to learn more about the things that we've discussed today and? What final encouragements would you have for our listeners as pertains to the topic of Christian liberty? Yeah, I um, great questions. Uh, I think I think for me, uh, my eyes were open to this in seminary, uh, learning from people like James Renahan, of which a lot of my notes here are are from. Uh, I don't have anything new here that I came up with myself, but he helped me to think through these things. Dr. Waldron as well in his chapter in Symbolics uh, covering these things. So my first reference for me is to, um, if you are confessional as we are, as you look to these chapters, don't forget to go to those scripture references so you can see for yourself 
what the word of God says in these things. Um, that should be our the first thing we go to when we are trying to work out Christian liberty, for instance, um, is go to the scriptures, see what the confession says, which is my helpful resource, which again, Dr. Waldron and Dr. Renahan used um, to teach me this. So that's the resources that I would point you to. Um, I know not everybody could go to the seminary, but man, those it, it opened my eyes um, when I went through these things, especially starting off uh, the whole course, reading those quotes from the reformers about the um, the importance of Christianity. It just it just blew me away because I too before that had a really poor view of what Christian liberty was, and so those are some resources. And then. I believe that as we become more familiar with the doctrine of Christian liberty, that we will be blessed by how truly wonderful this doctrine is. Uh, it's not a burden. It's not uh, something that we should avoid, but it's truly wonderful. And as we learn it, and even as pastors, um, as we teach it to our people, we cannot just protect them. Remember, there's those boundaries again, um, but teach them how to not to live in a life of fear, not to live a life of fear, but rather one that can celebrate the freedoms we have in Christ because he has given them to us. In fact, as the Bible and as the confession states, um, he has purchased them for us. And so we, as uh, pastors and in, in, in our local churches, we should be careful to um, guide God's people in the right direction according to Christian liberty, right? Um, we shouldn't overstep those boundaries that not only the confession, but the scriptures give us. And therefore tell us what those boundaries, tell the people what the boundaries are and don't over and start telling them to do things that you think um, because your personal convictions are, but tell them what the boundaries are. Tell, tell them what Christian liberty is, teach it to them and then allow them to freely make their own decisions in that, right? And then further discussion could happen down the road. But I think that's important. Um, for not only for just uh, laymen and the, the, the believer, but also for pastors to, to be careful to uh, explain how wonderful this is to the people of God, guide them, point them to Christ, and then get out of the way and allow them to know and understand these truths and to move forward and walking while resting in Christ and enjoying our Christian liberty. Amen. Amen. Well, we have been discussing Christian liberty by looking at the 1689 London Baptist Confession of Faith and its scriptural citations of the Word of God, then moving on to practical applications of this doctrine and dangers for right, not rightly understanding it. Um, so, uh, Rob, thank you so much for taking your time to talk about Christian liberty today. Uh, thank you for coming on the podcast. Uh, thank you guys so much for help, for having me, and I hope this uh, can encourage uh, the brethren in some way. Uh, and again, I uh, appreciate being on here. Thanks again. And to our listeners, we just want to wish you grace and peace. For additional content, check out our blog ministry at covenantconfessions.com. Also, keep up with our social media accounts on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Next, head on over to iTunes and leave us a review. Lastly, thank you for listening to the Covenant Podcast. Grace and peace to you.